Our hope would be that we create a peaceful, prosperous, and stable rules-based order where we can all prosper together. That, at this moment in time, under Xi Jinping, doesn't seem to be the direction that China is going in. And that does force us to be much more present, much more engaged in the region. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, an entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Zach Wheeler, and I'm joined by my co-host, Julia Ahn. Over the past 20 years, Southeast Asia, a diverse region of 10 nations, has become increasingly important to global economic development, U.S. interests, and great power geopolitics. In this special episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, we discuss with Congressman Ami Bera the growing importance of Southeast Asia in the world and in U.S. foreign policy. We ask how the Biden administration has sought to engage Southeast Asia thus far, how the U.S.-China competition is affecting U.S. policy towards Southeast Asian nations, and what Representative Barra believes Congress should do to engage the region moving forward. Congressman Ami Barra has represented California's 7th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives since 2013. Representative Barra is currently a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where he serves as chairman of the Subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and Nonproliferation. He's also a senior member on the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Congressman Barra, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Glad, Of course, glad to be on. Thanks for having me. To start us off, could you please provide our listeners with a high-level overview of Southeast Asia as a whole? Who are the key actors in the region? And which Southeast Asian countries are the United States the strongest partners which, with? And which countries does the United States have comparatively less ties with? You know, obviously, um, we've got strong economic ties with many of the, the countries in, in Southeast Asia. We've got a historic relationship with the Philippines um, going back decades. You know, obviously, we've got an alliance with, with Thailand. From an economic perspective, real strong um, relations with Singapore. Um, from a geopolitical strategic perspective, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to Indonesia as, you know, the, the largest country um, in the, the region. But also, you know, we're paying close attention to Vietnam as well as, you know, um, becoming a closer ally and friend to, to the United States. And then with the tensions in the South China Sea, obviously the Philippines is right there on the, the, the front end of that. So, you know, our relationship with the Philippines is hugely important. And I think, you know, if I, I were just to continue a little bit, I think often people make the mistake of thinking about Southeast Asia, the ASEAN countries, in the context of great power competition between the United States and China. And I think um, certainly there's a component of that, but I think we also have to think about the unique assets that Southeast Asia has, very dynamic region with a, a large population, you know, certainly it's a a, a growing region. How can we strategically make economic investments there, provide aid and development resources um, to bring those countries not just closer to us in the United States, but also to our like valued allies like Japan, Australia, uh, and others? Right. So to continue that point that you were making then, what can you talk a little bit more about what makes Southeast Asia an important region in the world in its own right, um, outside of strict interests with the United States, and also 
how is it important in advancing U.S. strategic and, like you said, economic interests? So, again, I, I think it's important for us to think about the dynamism of Southeast Asia and the ASEAN as a whole. Um, obviously, lots of different um, cultures, religions, um, um, countries in, in that region. And again, it's a mistake for us to, you know, the countries in that region are going to have to have a relationship both with the United States and with China, because geographically, obviously, they're in a neighborhood very close to China. Um, I think it, it's important for us to build our relationship, understanding that, because, you know, we don't want to put any of those countries in a position where they have to choose the United States or China, because I, I don't think that's a choice that they could make. And, and we might not like the, the choice, but if we approached it, and, and let's use supply chain redundancy as, as an area, because that's an area that we talk about. The pandemic um, has forced us, but uh, along with the rest of the world, to realize that we're very reliant on a single source um, for many of our supply chain components, in this case, China. As we think about both onshoring things, bringing um, some of those supply chains back to the United States, we also have to think about redundancy. And I think that's where we can go into other countries in Southeast Asia and think about where we make some of those investments, grow some of those industries, um, and, you know, whether that's in Vietnam, whether that's Indonesia um, or, or other countries in Southeast Asia. Congressman Barrett, the Biden administration has placed a real emphasis on strengthening U.S. ties in Southeast Asia in its foreign policy, partly because of its Indo-Pacific strategy that's forthcoming. What actions has the administration actually taken to diplomatically engage in the region so far? Yeah, so I, I think the administration's been pretty intentional in wanting the Southeast Asian countries to, to understand yeah, the, the importance that the, the U.S. is placing on U.S.-Southeast Asia relations, U.S.-ASEAN relations. You've seen high-level visits, you know, from Vice President Harris um, to Secretary Austin. You saw Secretary Blinken do a pull-aside with um, many of the ASEAN foreign ministers um, at the re recent U.N. meeting. So, you know, and, and with the upcoming U.S.-ASEAN summit and, and, you know, and hopefully a, a congressional delegation that I'd love to lead to the region as soon as it's safe for us to start traveling. Um, I think there's a lot of attention being paid to Southeast Asia. Um, again, understanding the unique opportunities there, but also understanding you know, issues of maritime security, freedom of navigation that are of concern to the, the countries in that region. And then you know, lastly, as you see the Quad Coalition, you know, really start to get elevated to the leaders level. And the Quad is the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. Um, there is a lot of discussion amongst you know, these four big um, democracies of how we approach Southeast Asia. Had had a chance to meet with the Australian prime minister um, when he was in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago. And again, I think there's places where we can work together to strengthen our partnership where, let's say, the United States and Australia work together to deepen our relationship with Indonesia or with, a, you know, address some of the issues in Thailand or you know, strengthen our relationship with Vietnam. Absolutely. And that's a really excellent overview of what the administration has done. But I'm also interested in how those engagements by the U.S. have actually been received 
by the Southeast Asians. What have some Southeast Asian countries said uh, in response to kind of renewed, rejuvenated U.S. engagement so far? I mean, my, my um, impression, you know, talking to um, foreign ministers in, in these countries, as well as parliamentarians and, and their ambassadors here in the United States, is this engagement has been really welcomed. Um, and and I, I think they want to have this deeper relationship, not just with the United States, but with, you know, Japan, with um, Australia and, and with the European Union. So I, I do think it's been very welcomed. Um, and, and the other thing that we should talk about is, you know, obviously we're in the middle of this pandemic and the COVID response, the vaccine um, diplomacy and development. Um, I think all that's hugely important. And yet I, I think you're seeing the Biden administration very strategically sending vaccines to the region. But you're also seeing other um, like valued countries like Japan and others sending vaccine to the region. And I think that provides a real opportunity for us to deepen our relationship. So to continue this um, this point, in foreign policy circles, many of the United States' engagement in Southeast Asia is framed around U.S.-China competition. And I know you talked a little earlier about how this should not be the only way we're framing things. I'm wondering if the way that it's being framed in foreign policy circles is fair? And if not, could you elaborate a little more on how you think um, U.S. engagement in Southeast Asia should be framed? And also, should the United States be competing with China at all in the region? Sure. Um, certainly, I, I agree with your supposition that that is how much of this is is, is being framed. I think that's too simplistic. Sur- with the direction that Xi Jinping is taking um, China, it's become much more authoritarian and, and China-centric. And you know, I would take the South China Sea as an example. You know, some of the flaunting of international rules and norms are creating very, um, you know, as, as you look at maritime security and freedom of navigation, it's creating a lot of insecurity in, in the region. And that impacts the countries in the region, Malaysia, Indonesia. You see um, the paramilitary, Chinese paramilitary boats, um, you know, incursion into Filipino fisheries, into Vietnamese fisheries. And that is not the United States changing the, the calculus. That's China acting in a very different way than they might have six, eight, 10 years ago. And I think that's forcing the United States along with um other countries like Australia, Japan, um, to work more closely with the Southeast Asian nations. I think, um, again, our hope would be that we create a peaceful, prosperous, and stable rules-based order where we can all prosper together. That, at this moment in time, under Xi Jinping, doesn't seem to be the direction that China is going in. And that does force us to be much more present, much more engaged in the region. Again, my perspective, in my opinion, is what drives this shouldn't be the competition with China, but it should be understanding the unique assets that exist in Southeast Asia, the importance of building and strengthening our ties to to Southeast Asia um, and helping, you know, develop those countries and, and strategically, again, working with partners like Japan, um, and others to make strategic investment in these countries. Um, 
not necessarily as much as I'd like to say they would then develop into mature democracies. That might not exactly be the direction that that they go, but they can develop into mature and reliable partners. Right. And to kind of situate for our listeners, I know um, foreign policy circles and ourselves, we talk a lot about U.S.-China competition. What exactly are the U.S. and are U.S. and China competing for? I know you talked just now a little bit about um, investing in democracy. Is that something that we're competing for? And what else is there? I mean, I, I think it is a, a competition based on a, a set of values, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we do value democracy. We value um, free markets and, and the, the freedom of navigation, freedom of movement of goods and services. I think it's perfectly acceptable for the United States and China to be competitors, but there should be a predictable rules-based order in this competition, as well as China competing with the rest of the, the world. But when we look at you know, some of Chinese actions in Hong Kong, you know, disregarding you know, a, a, an international treaty and taking away some of the rights of individuals in Hong Kong, or the aggression that's taking place over the Taiwan Straits with the, um, the people of Taiwan. It's not the United States that changed our one China policy. It's China that's decided to take a much more aggressive approach. And you know, we very much feel that it's up to the people of Taiwan to decide the direction that they want to go. That's not a change of one um, China policy, but that is a recognition that Taiwan is a vibrant um, yeah, people and a vibrant economy that's been very successful. And I think that China's aggression is creating a lot of insecurity in the region where, you know, Chinese-Australian um, relations are at an all-time low. China-India relations are at an all-time low. China-Japan relations are at an all-time low. And again, the desire is not to have a confrontation with China, but have a productive competition with China. Congressman, last week you chaired a House Foreign Affairs subcommittee hearing on strengthening U.S. engagement in Southeast Asia. I watched that hearing, and one point of criticism that came up regarding the Biden administration's approach towards the region that I thought was interesting was the idea that it's been kind of overly military-centric. Rather than focusing on economics or public health, we've kind of focused on military engagements and deals. And meanwhile, kind of public opinion polling in Southeast Asia has shown that Southeast Asians themselves are actually more concerned about economic crises and COVID than military tensions. I'm wondering, do you agree with this point of criticism that the United States' strategy in Southeast Asia has been kind of too military-centric? And if so, how should the United States go about diversifying its engagement in the region? Yeah, so um, I think both components are important, certainly the geopolitical military um, security concerns are very real. And again, I'd go back to, you know, some of the aggressive maneuvers that the the PRC um, is doing in the South China Sea, you know, you know, some of the economic coercive tools that are being used. um, But yeah, as I said in, in that hearing, I do think the tools of economic engagement, economic development, um, supply chain redundancy could be much more powerful tools in a U.S. ASEAN, U.S. South, Southeast Asia. And it doesn't just, again, it's not just the United States. As we in the G7, along with 
other mature democracies like Korea, India, I think we ought to work together to both develop these markets in Southeast Asia, develop their economies. That's good for us, but it's also good for the people in the region. And I think history would suggest those economic ties bring countries together strategically. Absolutely. And that's a perfect segue, Congressman, because I want to ask, the United States had this Trans-Pacific Partnership that it negotiated over kind of multiple years, um, which was a mega trade deal for the region and kind of actually beyond the region. But we pulled out of that deal uh, back in 2016, and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, a different trade deal, RCEP, um, the United States is also not part of. So with the importance of economic engagement in Southeast Asia and the United States not actually being engaged in these mega trade deals, what can the United States do um, to, to actually economically engage? Yeah. So if I, if I could take out my magic wand, I would wave it and go back to 2015 and get TPP across the finish line um, ratified in the Senate and um, because we negotiated that deal. And it's a shame that um, because of domestic U.S. politics that really emerged in that 2016 election, that you saw both presidential candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, who eventually became president, um, agree to pull out of TPP. So I, I actually think, you know, I'd love to see us get into what, what is now CPTPP. I think the countries, you know, my conversations, um, the CPTPP 11 would love to see the United States get back into that deal. I don't think that's going to happen um, via domestic politics at this moment in time. But I also think the politics of trade in the United States has changed. If you look at the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, USMCA, more Democrats voted to certify um, that trade deal than, than Republicans in the House of Representatives. I think it was 196 Democrats, 193 um, Republicans voted yes on that deal. Um, and there's a lot of TPP in USMCA. So while I don't think it'll happen overnight, I think there is that possibility to, to re-engage. And it might be a place where Congress has to take the lead to then move the Biden administration um, in that direction. Short of that, I think there are places where we can think about um, some trade deals. One is is the area of digital trade. Um, you know, how do you set the rules of you know data localization, data privacy, digital trade? You know, there are you know USMCA has a digital trade chapter. Um, CPTPP has a digital trade chapter. Um, they're actually not that far apart. You know, we've done through executive actions a digital trade um, deal with Japan. You know, talk to the folks in Singapore, New Zealand, Chile, they've got a digital trade framework. So that might be an area where you can create a framework of cooperation, of economic engagement around digital trade, which then may open up the door to a bigger deal, perhaps a return to CPTPP. And to pivot us um, a little bit, I'm curious, as a House representative yourself, what do you think is Congress's role um, in strengthening U.S. engagement in Southeast Asia. What can Congress do, and what should it do? And have you worked on any legislation recently to this effect? So um, we were very intentional in wanting to have an early hearing on the importance of Southeast Asia because 
that's one of the tools that we have, the public facing hearings that that we had. And again, I think that was really to signal the importance of how Congress looks at engagement in Southeast Asia. I touched on a second, you know, the pandemic's made it hard for us to travel, but you know, when it's feasible to travel, leading congressional delegations to to the region. You know, the, the last travel I did pre-pandemic, or one of the last travels I did was to Singapore, Malaysia, and the Philippines. And again, very intentional. You know, not a ton of delegations go through there. You know, the fact that you've already had the vice president of the United States visit the region um, and you know talk about the importance of this partnership. Um, I think it is very meaningful and, and, and telling. I'd love to get all of our ambassadors in place in the region. And you're starting to see some of those confirmations take place because we do need our top diplomats there. Um, in terms of legislation, I think we can be supportive. We're talking of, you know, I touched on digital trade. Um, while we can't negotiate a trade deal, I think we can push the administration to consider, you know, looking at digital trade. You know, we can certainly send signals that there are many members of Congress that support CPTPP. Um, and then we can actually, as we go through um, the appropriations process and think about, you know, specific programs in aid and development, the Millennial Challenge Corporation, you know, we can't tell them where to make those investments, but we can certainly, you know, be encouraging of investments in the region. And then another area that we just we've talked about is supply chain redundancy. You know, we can work with U.S. companies and U.S. industry to create the right framework um, through the tax code and others to incentivize investment in, in some of these countries. So there's a lot of tools that, that we can do. Obviously, it's a lot better when we and the administration are all on the same page. And yeah, I don't think this is a partisan issue, Democrat or Republican, because I think um, both parties see the importance of a strong U.S.-Southeast Asia relationship. Congressman Barra, something I'm interested in is it seems that there's often a tension in working with some Southeast Asian nations between kind of the United States' value or, well, the Biden administration's value-centric approach to foreign policy and some of the actual policies of Southeast Asian nations. One that comes to mind is the United States' um, has a very strong partnership with Singapore, but Singapore has a really poor track record of, um, say, civil liberties for the LGBTQ community or, um, at times, the rule of law. How does how does the United States balance those tensions between, at times, human rights and the kind of importance of engaging these powerful players in the region? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And I think you touched on it. We have to try to figure out what that right balance is. Um, I mean, it's, you know, President Biden and I think many members of Congress really um, are concerned about human rights issues and, and so forth in the region. I've always thought that, you know, it's difficult for us to come in and, you know, lecture a country and tell them what they should and shouldn't be doing. But if we're partners and we're working together and we have that religion, we can then have open conversations. And um, we should have the ability to have real conversations about areas that, that we may have a different set of values on, like LGBTQ rights in the, the region. Um, I think we can make progress by working together, um, but being honest with one another. And, you know, often that's behind closed doors and direct conversation. 
occasionally that's with members of Congress speaking out or the administration. Um, and, you know, the, you use Singapore as an example. Obviously, we have some concerns about things that are happening in Thailand right now. Um, yes, certainly countries like Cambodia and, and others, you know, are not in great spots either. But I, I'm a believer in diplomacy, and I think you have to engage with those countries and you have to have honest conversation to try to incrementally over time move them in, in a values-based direction. Congressman, many of our listeners are very interested in or currently pursuing careers in public service, working in Congress, or even becoming a representative themselves one day. What advice do you have for them? You know, I'd, I'd say one, while the United States is not a perfect country, I, I think we're a pretty remarkable country. And, you know, we're, we're at a generational crossroads. We have real... Um, challenges that, that we're going to face um, because we're a much more interconnected world. Climate change just being one of them, we're seeing you know, how a pandemic and a virus has impacted all of us. I'd say go out there and get involved. If, you know, for, if you're a college undergrad, you know, one of the best ways to do that is to go you know, take a quarter and intern and, and work on the Hill. You'll get a firsthand experience um, and sense of what's happening. And it's not just working in a congressional or Senate office. It could be working on one of the committees. Um, but even just, you know, get, getting on there, you'll see, you know, your government at work. Um, I'm, you know, for those that are interested in the foreign service, um, I think it's a remarkable career. And I think we have to spend more time investing in our diplomatic tools. I, I think far too much of our focus has been leading with our military um, when it came to global engagement. And I think that's out of balance. And we, I think, had a much more effective foreign policy when you had a better balance between the military and your diplomatic um, tools and, and your diplomatic corps. So I do think there'll be an intentional regrowth of the diplomatic corps. So the foreign service is another great way. But then there's programs like the Peace Corps that are some of our, our, our most effective um, policy tools. But I guess short answer is lots of opportunities out there. Just go out there and, and seek those opportunities. Get on the Hill. Um, and, you know, I, I did not start out thinking I was going to be a, a member of Congress. It's just, you know, something that evolved over time. Well, on that note, Congressman Barrett, we appreciate you so much for taking the time to speak to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs today. It's been a really fantastic conversation. And it's really great to learn from your insights. So thanks for being here. Great. I appreciate it. And again, go out, dream big, and you know, um, make those dreams come, come true. Be well. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.